Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Kamsin Silipachai, who is the VP of Research and Portfolio Strategy at Sage Advisory, where he plays a major role in overseeing all of their ETF-focused efforts. Kamsin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. And, you know, it's great timing because the Federal Reserve is meeting next week. And it's a highly anticipated meeting because they're anticipated to potentially pause their interest rate hikes after over a year straight of raising them. What do you expect is going to happen at that meeting? Well, um, it's definitely been a unprecedented kind of Fed cycle. Um, and I think that kind of the shift to whatever we call this, a pause, um, now they're calling it a skip, um, is also going to be very tricky. So, you know, we expect them to pause interest rate hikes at this meeting. Um, but as you can kind of, you know, you've been following the headlines at all with the Fed, um, they've kind of communicated that inflation remains too high and they still want to fight inflation. And so, you know, they're kind of opening the door to a, a rate hike potentially in July. Um, and the markets are kind of pricing in a potential for that as well. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's something that's on the table and has kind of, you know, been manifesting itself in, in interest rates markets for quite some time. I think our framework for thinking about the Fed is that, you know, coming into, I would say, the second quarter of this year, um, pre-Silicon Valley, um, they were they were really t- taking away any type of forward guidance. So they wanted to kind of, you know, kind of shift to this um, data-dependent kind of you know, regime. Um, they stopped giving forward guidance, really trying to maximize the optionality for themselves to kind of react to data. And so with the market saying, well, you're going to have to cut rates, you know, later this year, you're definitely going to pause. They're starting to push back on that. They're saying, hey, we actually may skip, you know, kind of inventing this, you know, um, new kind of rate path that benefits them. And so I think that they're what they're trying to do is just keep market on their toes. And so that's how we're reading it. And it just depends on how the data develops. Inflation has been coming down quite a bit. And so as long as it continues to come down, I think the Fed you know, they hike one more time, you know, they're, they're largely done, you know, there's, we're not going to see a cycle like we did last year. Um, And so that's really how we're viewing it. And I think that, you know, in terms of kind of the easing part, so, you know, are they going to cut rates sometime this year? We don't think they're really going to be as aggressive this time on easing interest rates, because if you look at pre-COVID, they, you know, anytime we had a slowdown, you know, you'd have kind of a response in terms of quantitative easing or just easing of financial conditions from the Fed um, with no consequences. You know, asset prices would move higher. You know, there wouldn't be a cost in terms of inflation. You know, you, you started to see that, um, not started to, you know, we've seen that in full force here in 2021, 2022, lots of policy stimulus resulting in, you know, super high and persistent inflation. And it's been a really painful process to get that down. And so are we going back to a zero interest rate, you know, um, you know, um, policy? Are we going to see QE, you know, at the first sign of a recession? We think the Fed probably waits a little bit closer to when it's more obvious. And so therefore, you, you may not see them be as easy on, on the policy trigger. So we think it's probably right that the, you know, interest rates cuts are being priced out of the end of this year, although we don't think they're going to hike much more. 
Super interesting. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether it is a pause or a skip or what is it? Because we did see the Bank of Canada come out and they actually resumed interest rate hikes after pausing for four months. So maybe the Fed does something similar. Definitely, definitely. And I think that's the that's what the market reacted to for sure. I mean, you saw, you know, rates really kind of sold off pretty hard um, on a BOC decision. And so that's definitely going to be a possibility. To us, it just really depends on kind of the appetite for the Fed in terms of, you know, tolerating this high level of inflation. And, you know, one or two more hikes, um, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it'll definitely, you know, be painful in certain parts of the market. But again, I think the, the, the really aggressive parts of the hike is largely over. You know, I think, you know, now we're kind of trying to, you know, land the plane, so to speak, for the economy to kind of a more of a Goldilocks, so to speak. I, I think we're, we're in the mind that it's going to be very hard to get that soft landing, but, um, but that's what the Fed's trying to do. That sounds great. It makes a lot of sense. And well, let's hope we do get that soft landing. Now, shifting gears a little bit, um, you do work for Sage Advisory. So I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about Sage. What does the firm do and how does it work with ETFs? Sure. So Sage, um, we were founded in 1996, uh, based here in Austin, Texas, um, as a fixed income manager. Um, so that's um, most of kind of our strategies are based in U.S. fixed income across sectors. The way we got into ETFs um, and kind of building ETF portfolios um, was really interesting. So in 1998, we had an institutional client that really wanted a kind of a bolt-on exposure to equities. Um, at the time, we, you know, we, we identified that there was this new technology um, on the scene called ETFs, and it, it allowed you to kind of get efficient access to a diversified portfolio of equities. And so we started to build an equity strategy at that time for, for that client. And then that's grown into kind of an ETF strategist business um, that we've kind of you know, cultivated alongside the growth of the ETF industry since that time. Um, and so we don't issue ETFs ourselves. We just utilize kind of um, ETFs from across, you know, the universe of providers. And we build portfolios and strategies really across equities, fixed income, you know, multi-asset um, strategies, as well as, you know, more purpose-driven models like um, income-based um, strategies, as well as, you know, things like cash balance plans and the like. That's great. And can you tell us about some of the portfolios that you guys have built? What type of strategies are you running and who is using these strategies? Sure. So, you know, the largest kind of um, segment of our strategies are just kind of your traditional 60-40 um, um, strategies. And so, you know, your balance models consisting of um, a global equity um, allocation as well as a, a fixed income allocation. So just on the equity side, you know, we're, we invest on a global basis across um, developed and emerging markets, um, across kind of um, the market cap structure. Um, and so what we try and do is build a portfolio um, that tracks, you know, whatever risk level the clients have chosen. And then we try to tactically allocate among different market segments. So we, you know, conduct tactical asset allocation to try and you know, manage risk or, you know, outperform the market over the long term. And so, um, you know, we have regional views um, on equities, EM versus DM, US versus um, kind of developed international, um, as well as uh, industry sector styles. Um, we could express those in these portfolios. 
And so that's on the equity side, kind of how we look at the world in terms of the ETF universe. We try to partition the world into kind of, again, the region, industry and sector styles. And then we try to pick the best of breed. And oftentimes we will have, you know, kind of portfolio shifts on a monthly basis based on kind of how, where we see the market um, kind of three to six months out. And then on the fixed income side, we manage kind of a, you know, kind of a core plus strategy. And so that's, that looks like a, you know, an investment grade portfolio plus a a non-core segment, which consists of things like high yield, emerging market debt. We could even go into preferred stocks. So income-based segments. Um, And so we'll, we'll allocate to those kind of opportunistically as there's opportunity, obviously spreads are pretty richer than fair here, but you know, when things are really, really cheap, we could, you could see us kind of allocate a lot more to kind of some of these spread sectors, but that's, that's our fixed income allocation. And and I think, you know, one other notable strategy for us has been uh, multi-asset income, um, which is a a income-based strategy. So we try to maximize income relative to risk of the portfolio. So we try to optimize around, um, you know, having a properly diversified and balanced portfolio across income generating segments. So things like dividend equities, income-based equities, um, non-core fixed income I mentioned before, like things like high yield corporates, EM debt, international bonds, and then core fixed income, things like just your investment grade corporate bonds, treasuries. And then we have a hybrid component, which, you know, things like um, preferreds, MLPs um, when, when, when they're attractive, although we, we haven't used MLPs in a long time. And then the last thing is that we do have some ESG oriented models kind of similarly to, to what I've just mentioned, except, you know, we're trying to screen for ETFs that have a superior ESG profile. Super interesting. Now, obviously you use ETFs pretty extensively, but when you consider the universe of ETFs, when you want exposure to a certain type of investment, there's a lot of ETFs to choose from, right? So how do you choose? I learned I love to learn more about how you vet ETFs. Yeah, so um, it just depends on uh, what we're looking for, but I would say the I just start from the largest segment. So when you're looking for kind of you know your largest liquid indexed segments, you know at that point it's a cost game. Um, you know a lot of these um, big name you know providers have pretty much lowered the cost to close to zero cost on some of these, you know, like core, core U.S. equity ETFs. And so that's not super interesting. I mean, I think, you know, what's more interesting is um, when you look under the hood to in different styles, regions um, and and industries, you know, we start to now look at the index construction. So, um, you know, and it's not necessarily one is better than the other. We just want to make sure that um, we're getting the right exposure based on our kind of macro view. So for example, um, like a U.S. value ETF, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to construct, you know, value ETFs. Are they, is it a market cap weighted um, ETF? How do they define value? Is it just your traditional like price to book type measures or is it like a free cash flow yield? You know, one thing we look at is sector exposure. So sometimes, you know, you want to go long value, but you don't want to take the sector risk of your traditional value uh, sectors like energy and, and financial. So maybe there's an ETF that's sector neutral or sector constrained. And so that's one way we look at it um, on the fixed income side or on the income side. You know, ultimately, that's a lot more uniform, in my opinion. Um, you know, a lot of these ETFs are 
primarily indexed. So they're just indexed to benchmark with, you know, kind of market cap weight. Um, fixed income, especially on the corporate side, is largely less liquid. So it's hard to kind of have extremely custom uh, ETFs. Um, but, you know, I think there's a, a huge amount of kind of uh, active ETFs on the fixed income side at scale. And so what we'll do is on the, on the fixed income side, we'll definitely be, you know, meeting with those management teams, you know, figuring out, you know, what makes them tick in terms of, um, you know, their edge, um, how they generate alpha, um, what are their kind of exposures like over time? We want to make sure we're not, you know, surprised, um, you know, as we kind of invest with these folks. And um, and then we'll pick kind of folks that we think that we can can generate alpha outside of the index names. Um, that's coming to bear a little bit in, in equity space. There's been a proliferation of active ETFs. So I could see that happening as well in, in equity space. Interesting. So Comson, earlier in the show, we talked about your outlook for the Fed. It sounds like you think they're close to winding down the rate hikes if they haven't already. So given that, where do you see the opportunities, whether it be in fixed income or equities, are you um, preferring domestic equities, international equities? Where do you see the opportunities? Yeah, so, so big picture right now, we've been fairly defensive um, on kind of our, you know, on our positioning, just given our outlook on kind of second half of the year. So for example, you know, we have a lower kind of beta um, exposure in our equity model, but also kind of in our multi-asset strategies as well. So overweight fixed income versus equity. So lower risk than, than what we would typically be doing. Um, and that's just because of a couple of different things. So first, you know, we think that growth is slowing and you're seeing kind of a pretty rapid decrease in inflation, but also on the liquidity side, we do think that you're going to see a period of liquidity withdrawal in the markets that, you know, it's not going to be good for asset prices nor the economy. So, you know, I think with this debt ceiling kind of debate, we haven't seen a ton of increase in treasury issuance, especially, you know, T-bills particularly um, to kind of, they've been, you know, the, the U.S. government have been kind of funding the U.S. spending by, you know, drawing down their bank account, uh, the treasury general account. They have to refill that. They have to restock that by issuing a lot of treasuries, um, a lot more than than they were uh, forecasting, and so um, I think that that liquidity withdrawal um, kind of takes money um, out of um, the private sector, potentially bank reserves. So that's taking money directly out of the economy. Um, banking stresses that emanated in, in March, um, while we think that they're contained in terms of contagion risk, you know, a, a higher cost of lending, um, lower loan demand, you know, just results in um, less credit in the system. So if, you know, money and credit equals liquidity, um, you know, that's less liquidity on the margin. You also have things like overseas, um, you know, the ECB, um, TLTROs, there'll be 500 billion of euros of, um, of maturities this month, uh, at the end of this month, which means that, you know, the banks that have been funding themselves with TLTROs now have to go find new and more expensive sources of funding. And so, I think that all that kind of means that you're going to see a period of liquidity withdrawal in the second half of the year. And then the Fed is talking about hiking, you know, a little bit more. And so that's more tightening on the margin. And so when you look at the kind of the liquidity and policy picture, it's actually not going to be very favorable for asset markets. And so we're taking risks down across our portfolios. Um, in terms of kind of market segments, you know, 
I think we're trying to focus on income. Um, and so, you know, overweight fixed income, focus on the areas that we think, um, you know, still provide somewhat of a high income that'll be somewhat resilient to, to this upcoming environment. So um, we, we, we think that high yield bonds still provide um, some value here, especially as we wait, wait out kind of this environment. So, you know, you're seeing yields in high yield upwards of eight and a half plus. Um, and, you know, high yield, when you look at kind of the composition of that market, has totally shifted in terms of, you know, kind of the quality. So over the last 20 years, quality of high yield indexes has improved significantly, you know, much more secured, you know, borrowing. Um, and so, you know, for a given level of spread in high yield, it's much higher quality. And, and also the rise of like private credit and things like that um, over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years or so means that a lot of the lower quality borrowers went to the private markets, went to the shadow banking system in order to access liquidity. And so, you know, the high yield markets is going to be more resilient to a default cycle this time, especially when a lot of the defaults took place during the last kind of oil bust in 2015. And all, a lot of those companies are obviously doing pretty well right now, given <clears throat> given where oil prices have been. Um, and so we're still, you know, overweight some high yield here. Um, we still like, you know, the, the income that it provides. Um, and, and in terms of regional um, uh, allocation, um, we're pretty neutral. I, I think, um, you know, there's, um, you can see some pain in Europe, you know, they've, they've definitely outperformed um, since October. Um, but again, I think we think that kind of that, um, you know, TLTRO uh, maturity could hurt um, the banking system in the Eurozone, which could, could see some weakness, could result in some weakness in European equities. And so um, we're underweight Europe um, a little bit, but not a big regional um, exposure at this point. Fantastic. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Comson, a ton of great information. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.